I wonder if you've ever had the experience of walking into the living room and finding a movie on that you are kind of two-thirds of the way through, but it's just captured your attention. Or maybe you're flipping channels. You come by something and you really have no idea what's going on, but there's something just mesmerizing about it. And as, as soon as you can, you have to figure out, what, what's this show? I need to go back and watch the whole thing because it's, it's amazing, but I don't understand it. I want to I grasp what's going on here. I think so often our approach to the Christmas story is to, to hear about the birth of Christ and to find it moving. The details are amazing. We can tell something powerful is going on. And yet, too often with this story, we fail to go back and ask, what all came before? We see the, the great and powerful climax of, of this baby born who's pronounced the, the king and God himself. Yet we don't really grasp what's the problem that Jesus came to solve. If we go to the scriptures and read the stories of Christ's birth, so you go to Matthew and Luke, it's clear from reading them that there's a lot that's come before. So when Matthew begins telling about Jesus, he doesn't start with Jesus, he starts with Abraham, you know, way back in the Old Testament. And as Matthew tells the story, he keeps on talking about these, these old prophets from way back when who, who told about these things that are now coming true. Likewise with Luke, when Luke starts telling his story about Jesus' birth, he doesn't start with Jesus at all, he starts with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a in some ways, a very Old Testament figure. He's, he's born to an old covenant priest. We meet these characters in Luke like Simeon and Anna, and what's notable about them is how long they've been waiting for a Savior to arrive in Israel. When we start looking into it, we see the story into which Jesus is born is not a fairy tale. It's the story of human history. It's the major plot line. It's the meta-narrative. It's the, the one story that makes sense of all the other stories, including our very own lives. It's a true story. It's history. Just to grab one detail out of the Christmas story that I think we've already alluded to, when the angel Gabriel appears to Jesus, Jesus' father or adoptive father Joseph, he tells Joseph to name him Jesus because he will be a savior. He will save his people from their sins. The Christmas story assumes people need saving, that we are lost in sin. And it's only when we understand this backstory that we understand the true meaning of the Christmas story, the true hope that Christmas offers to use this old covenant priest, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, his words at the end of Luke chapter 1, the hope of Christmas is that in Christ, the light of salvation has dawned. The sun has risen. It's the day spring, he calls it in the old King James and in our hymn this morning. It's dawned, and it's dawned on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. You can't understand Christmas without feeling darkness, the shadow of death. The scriptures describe a world of suffering and death because of sin. If we're to make sense of 
Jesus being born as a baby, if we're to make sense of our own lives, we must understand what the scriptures say about us, that we do sit in darkness in the shadow of death. So this morning, to understand the Christmas story, we're going to go back to the real beginning of the story. We're going to go back to the key passage in scripture that shows us how the world and human beings came to be in the dire straits that we are when Jesus was born. So turn your Bibles to Genesis 3. You can find this on pages 2 and 3 if you've gotten a Bible from the back table or one that we've given you. Genesis 3, of course, is not the very beginning, but we won't read all of chapters 1 and 2. I'll just summarize and tell you that those chapters tell us how the Almighty God created the world and everything in it, including the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, The scriptures say that he made them in his image and that he blessed them with his word. When we read about the Garden of Eden, it may sound like this far off, even mythical place, but it was a real place. And we should also understand it to be like a garden temple. It's it's the holy place where God dwelled with his people and where people had true life and abundance. The big thing about the Garden of Eden was not that there were a bunch of trees and the people were naked. The big thing about it is that man had fellowship with God. They could talk with him, and he talked with them. He blessed them with his presence and with his word. So even before they sinned, God saw fit to give them commands and tell them how to live, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, and also not to eat of a particular tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them in this blessed garden full of beauty and good things to eat, if you eat of that tree, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So that's the setting for Genesis 3. Adam and his wife Eve in God's blessed paradise, surrounded by everything good, enjoying fellowship with their good God. Let's read, beginning in Genesis 3, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. The man said, The woman whom you gave to me with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of, of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Remember, we began with this idea that the context for Christ's birth is this world ushered in by the fall, this world under the shadow of death. People have been ruined by sin and need saving. And this chapter in the Bible shows the moment where sin enters into human experience. It shows the moment where death enters in. And so we should pay careful attention to both sin and death. This morning we're going to ask and hopefully answer three questions. What is sin? What is the penalty for sin? And what is the solution to sin and death? So what is sin? What is the penalty for sin? And what is the solution to sin and death? If we want a really simple definition of sin... We can just say, sin is disobeying God's commands. That's a good place to start. God gave a command. You can read it in chapter 2, verse 16. Before Eve was created, God commanded Adam, don't eat of that tree. And he warned him, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. It's clear that in some form, perhaps perhaps not the best form, Adam passed this on to Eve because she repeats at least a version of the command to the serpent although she adds the bit about not touching it. She knew they were not supposed to eat of this one tree in the midst of the garden. She knew that. Adam knew that. But they took and ate. And God held them accountable. And when he does, in chapter 3, verse 17, when he's speaking to Adam and he's pronouncing judgment, God cites the fact that Adam ate of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. That was Adam's sin. That's what brought upon Adam's ju- God's judgment. He had done what God said not to do. He disobeyed God's command. God commanded. 
Adam and Eve disobeyed, and judgment comes. Sin is disobeying God's command. We might well ask, well, what about me? What commands am I to obey? Like, we're not in the Garden of Eden. As far as we know, there are no tree-related commands that we need to obey. Which commands might we be guilty of breaking? A great place to go is to, to listen to Jesus, our Lord. He said this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five through 39, when a lawyer asked him, which is the greatest commandment? This is how Jesus responded. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. That last line is Jesus' way of saying all the things that God's commanded and written to you in the, in the scriptures, they're summarized in love God and love neighbor. So if you want to evaluate your life and ask maybe perhaps the way Adam should have asked, you know, what, what does God command of me? You should look here. Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? Do you love God with all that you are? This is more than just giving lip service. So you notice that there's uh, some, some descriptions there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, everything that you are, inside and out. Do you love God? Are you totally devoted to knowing God, trusting God, and obeying Him? Is your life a life of worshiping the good God who made you? Your good creator says your duty is to love him. God has commanded you. Are you obeying? Do you love God? One way to see whether you obey this first and greatest commandment is to ask, how am I doing with the second? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Right? God's invisible. We might think we love him and just be deceived, but this is where the rubber meets the road, perhaps. You know, we, we all have self-concern, right? When you woke up this morning, you were probably concerned to go get your coffee or tea or whatever beverage you want right in the morning. You know, you, you instinctively care for yourself. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. You, you look out for yourself. L literally, if you see a group photo that you're in, your eye immediately goes to yourself. How am I looking in this photo, you want to know? Can I post this on Facebook or whatever the kids are using these days? Right? We want to know, how did we look? We're concerned for our own well-being in, in the immediate present and, and in the future. How, how am I doing today and what's it going to be like you know, a year from now? We're concerned for ourselves. And this is natural. You know, it's interesting. God doesn't say you must be totally desirous and desireless and forsake all care for yourself. No, God says you, you should love others the way you love yourself. So you should think about the, the care and concern you have for yourself and think, I should love my neighbors this way. And Jesus makes it clear that the word neighbor is all-encompassing. You can go read the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 for the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? But the answer is everybody. We can think of those you know, neighbors we talk about in the 21st century, that the person who lives in the apartment or house next door, that's your neighbor. But... Your family, the people who live in your own home, they are your neighbors. The guy across the cubicle from you at work, that's your neighbor. The people that you might naturally dislike, 
They are your neighbors. Even your enemies, made in God's image, are owed your love. God commands us to be concerned for what they need. We're not permitted to mistreat or overlook any, anyone. So it's, it's disobeying God if we go through our lives with a laser focus on ourselves and our needs to the exclusion of all others. Our God says that we owe love to our neighbor and in the, the set of people that are called neighbors is, is every other person. We can talk about those neighbors that are near you versus those neighbors that are in, around the world you never meet, but it's clearly God intends that all people to be included in this category of neighbor. So our God says we owe them love. Are you obeying God? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving people the way God does? Do you have the same care for them that you have for yourself? What about the, the unlovable people in your life? Do you love those neighbors? Do you care about what they need? Do you seek to serve them and, and care for them in the same ways that you care about yourself and your own well-being? God commands us to love our neighbors. Are we obeying him? To disobey is what God calls sin. The simplicity of defining sin that way is really helpful. It's good to have clear, simple definitions. But I do think we'll be helped by going a little deeper. Because in, a, in an age like ours where, where it's okay to break the rules, it's even kind of cool if you're a rule breaker, we might reduce sin to just rule breaking. I just didn't do a couple things I was supposed to do. No biggie. Try next time. So we need to understand a little bit more. And, and to help us do that, I think it's really important to see God's goodness in this passage, that he is the good God and creator of mankind. So God made the world and mankind, and he poured out his goodness and love on Adam and Eve. So he places them in this garden, and it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's full of good things to eat. So the, Lord, uh, the scriptures say in chapter 2, verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So think about that. It's, it's a, something that God specially wants to draw our attention to that in this place was full of good trees and they were pretty. God made beautiful things. Why, why did he do that? He didn't have to do that, right? He made the garden a beautiful place and in full of variety. So, so Adam and Eve were not sort of subsistence farmers scratching out a hard life for themselves. They were, they were in God's garden temple, surrounded by bounty. And more than that, God gave them himself. He fellowshiped with them. He walked with them in the garden on a, a daily basis, it appears, from, from Genesis 3. He had given them a mission to obey him and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with worshipers and he had given them his word, they had fellowship with him. The point of all this is to say that Adam and Eve were God's beloved children. They were God's king and queen here on earth to represent him. He loved them. And so for them, their job was to receive his love with joy, to listen to him, to obey him. They were to abide in his love by keeping his commandments. 
Tim Keller says that they were to love, trust, and serve him, or love, trust, and obey him. And he's summarizing an old Puritan who said the same thing. This is a pretty basic and good definition of worship. To worship God is to love, trust, and obey him. That's what Adam and Eve were to do. They were to live in this garden worshiping God, loving him, trusting him, and obeying him because God had first loved them. So in this light, we see that disobedience is much more than just breaking some rules. By eating of this tree that God had told them not to eat of, Adam and Eve were turning their back on the wisdom, provision, and love of God. God had provided them with his instruction and his love in this perfect setting, and they rejected it. They rejected God's instruction. They despised his beautiful provision. They spurned his love. So you see, sin is an, an inward distrust of God and a desire for your own way. That's what sin is. And we can see some of the elements of this if we look closely at Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, when, God, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So notice there that she, she sees that the fruit is delightful. It's desirable to make her wise. The serpents promised her, this will make you like God. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. So this, it's desirable for that reason. And she wanted it. It was desirable. And so she took and ate it. At that moment, she wanted to stop being a dependent servant of God. Instead, she really wanted to take God's place to be like him, to not need him anymore. And so that's why she took an aid. Adam's sin was the same, though perhaps even worse, because Adam had been specifically charged with working and keeping the garden. He was like a priest king, supposed to, to keep the evil out. And here he is, listening to the serpent. Their disobedience, then, was born of a, a deep and, fair to say, evil desire to be free of God and God's wisdom. Sin, then, is disobedience. And the root of disobedience is a heart that rejects God's truth and love. How has God loved you and provided for you and told you his truth? What have you done with that? Friends, our sin is a worship problem. Even if you don't think of yourself as very religious. Because our sin touches what we love, trust, and serve. What do you love, trust, and serve? God made us. He showers us with his goodness. He calls us to worship him with our whole heart. Not because he's an egomaniac, but because he desires us to flourish. And this is how human beings flourish. When they trust serve, and love God. That's what we were meant to do, but in our sin, our foolish hearts turn away to lesser things. We, we believe that we will find life somewhere besides fellowship with God. So we put our trust in our money or our power or anything else. We love the way that we feel when others do our bidding, and so we manipulate or lie to get our way. 
We love our comfort and security, and so we, we put all our energy into amassing wealth for ourselves so that we can feel secure. Or, or we love sexual pleasure, and so we indulge in pornography or illicit thoughts or sinful relationships. We love our own pride, and so we reject serving others or doing anything that would make us seem lesser in their eyes. Instead of trusting in God's design for ourselves, our relationships, our bodies, we put absolute trust in our wisdom, our desires, what seems good to us. We see and we take. And we live in a world that makes that really easy to do. Have it your way. See it. Take it. Whatever seems good to you. When we examine sin and what it is, we, we begin to see some big problems with pop culture Christmas, pop culture Christmas movies. If you watch any of these movies, you'll see that many of them have a bizarro world doctrine of sin. And the sin is that people have stopped believing in Santa or the magic of Christmas. Or people have gotten too busy with their high-powered jobs and they've, they've stopped believing in the goodness of family togetherness. They've stopped believing in the goodness of people and generosity. These are the sins against Christmas, doubting the goodness of the human race. And the resolution in these movies is that they just need a reminder of what the holiday really means. or They need to face a crisis that will remind them of what's really important. And then with this reminder, they'll, they'll start being good again. They'll start being loving, and Santa will be saved, and everything will be okay. This is what we're told, and I think sometimes we're tempted to believe this. I'm a pretty good person. I just need a, occasional nudges in the right direction and everything will be okay. Are you, are you tempted to believe that? You're just a bit off track? The real Christmas story, the one in the Bible, tells us that it's not Christmas that needs saving. It's we, we need saving. Our hearts are, are discontent with what God has provided us. We are discontent with God's love and truth. We've forsaken the provision that he's given us for a lie. That's what sin is. Sin is disobedience to God that springs from a heart set on ourselves. So that's what sin is. Well, what's the penalty for sin? God really did promise Adam that he would die if he ate the fruit. And he doesn't immediately die. So in a weird way, Satan is, is sort of proved right. He says, you shall not surely die to Eve. If, if we restrict the definition to physical death, at least in the immediate term, Satan was right. And it's worth observing that, that Satan often deals with half-truths masquerading as the whole truth. His method is to question and raise doubts. He often wants to obscure the true price of sin, so he's like that dishonest car dealer who's buttering you up. He's telling you what a great negotiator you are. All the while, he's hiding some fatal flaw. He's going to you know, have the transmission drop out as soon as you're off the lot. Some good questions for those of us who want to fight sin are, am I substituting half-truths for the whole truth? And am I discounting the cost of sin? But the point stands that Adam and Eve sin, and they, they don't immediately drop dead. They, they don't immediately physically die. But it's clear that they do gain this knowledge of good and evil because immediately when faced with 
God, when God visits them, as it apparently was his, his practice to do in the cool of the day, they're immediately afraid and ashamed. Right? That God approaches them in the garden, and the man says, I, I knew I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid. They immediately feel their guilt and shame of sin. Isn't that interesting? I mean, maybe to try to imagine Adam and Eve happy and holy in the garden, it's hard to do. But this is very relatable. Haven't we all felt afraid and ashamed when we've been caught in something wrong? Why is this such a universal experience? Well, sin brings guilt and shame, doesn't it? But it also brings much more than that. When the Lord pronounces his judgment on Adam... He promises him in chapter 3, verse 19, that death is coming. It may be delayed, but he says, Adam, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Physical death is not immediate, but it is a direct and unavoidable consequence of Adam's disobedience. Sin brings physical death. But that's not all. Notice that when God judges Adam at the end of chapter 3, he also casts him out of the garden. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's this other second tree in the garden with the name, the tree of life, which apparently would have given Adam and Eve immortality if they were to have eaten of it. And God in his wisdom bars the way from it. We, we have a kid's book that describes this and says, because of your sin, you can't come in. This is a repeated pattern in scripture. Because of their sin, they, they can't come in. Where, where are they cut off from? They're cut off from God's presence, from the place where they could fellowship with God and know him, they're cut off from life. So Eden was the place where God's happy and holy people could enjoy him, and now they're cut off with this terrifying, flame-sword-wielding angel to keep them from coming back in. The way to God has been barred, and humans are on the outside, exiled, cut off from the life they had enjoyed. It's fair to describe this as spiritual death. Sin brings spiritual death. And this is immediate. Physical death will come later, but right now, Adam and Eve are dead in sin the minute they take of that fruit. And what we see is that immediately their world also is, is cursed. So they had enjoyed life and bounty and beauty in God's presence. Now what will they enjoy? Pain. Eve will have pain in childbirth. Adam will have pain as he tries to you know, reap some fruit from the hard soil and there's thorns and thistles. Mankind is cast out of the light of God's presence into the darkness that Zechariah prophesied or said was there. The world now sits in darkness and in the shadow of death because of sin. This physical and spiritual death is what sin deserves. It's God's righteous judgment. Paul will later say, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. You work sin, you reap death. That's what you're owed by God 
Because God is good and holy. When we forsake him, when we rebel against him, when our, when our hearts turn to other things, we deserve death and judgment forever. We, we preserve, want to preserve life. We think physical death is the big deal. But God would have you see that the pain and the, the, the threat of death you face, that's just a pointer to something much more important. And that's spiritual death, eternity away from the presence of God. So it's fair to say this spiritual death has both present and future dimensions. Everyone born today is born in this state of spiritual death. With our eyes blind to God's goodness, our, our ears deaf to his word, our hearts set on our own ways, we, we're blind, deaf, and dumb, spiritually dead. That's, that's in the present. But if we die in that state, without repenting and turning to Christ, we enter into eternal spiritual death. And that will never change. There's no hope of redemption from that state. In that state, we experience God's anger forever. The eternal spiritual death is not annihilation. It's eternal torment of body and soul. If you've heard of hell, hell is the name that's given to this eternal torment. It's what we deserve because we've rejected our good God and disobeyed him. Death is the right penalty for sin. Physical and spiritual death. It's what we deserve from a God of truth and justice. As I've already mentioned, our pop culture Christmas has its own bizarro doctrine of sin, but it has no concept of spiritual death. And again, you can see this in the way that the solutions to these problems are always so trite. Again, we just need a nudge in the right direction. We don't need a new life. We just need to be a little better than we are. This moment of crisis to help us remember what's really important. These are just lies that we tell ourselves because we don't want to face reality. The reality is we're in much worse shape than we dare imagine. We are in exile, far from God, his enemies. Apart from his grace, that's where every human being is. So what's the solution? Well, we can't look to most pop culture to tell us anything about the real solution, but we can look to God's word. Scripture tells us, and the message we find in God's word is a, an idea that's far better than that the magic of Christmas will be saved. The amazing hope that Scripture offers is that the very God we've offended with our sin has not abandoned us to our sin. He's pronounced judgment on sin. He's allowed death and darkness to reign, but that's not the whole story. God himself promises to come and save us. That's what the birth of Jesus is all about. And we get a, a hint of this in Genesis 3.15 where God is talking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, between the ones that you give birth to, Satan, and the ones that she gives birth to. And then he starts to speak of this particular one. He shall bruise your head. There will be a man born of woman who will crush Satan's head. This is the promise that keeps scripture going. And we also see a summary of the story 
in the first hymn we sung, the one that we sang a little better than the second one, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I actually encourage you to get your bulletin out and look at it with me. I lost my bulletin somewhere, but I've got it in my notes. The very first line says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here. Hasn't that been what we've been talking about? In this case, we're talking about Israel, but, but really we can talk about humanity. Humanity is in exile from God, barred the way by this terrible flaming sword-wielding angel. There's no way to get back to him on our own. And we're captives to sin and death. It's a, a plea to God to come and ransom us, to save us out of this state. And then verse 3 puts the request this way. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From the depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. This song seems to know that we do sit in the darkness of the shadow of death, that sin reigns. In verse 4, we long for God to disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Verse 4 is basically a quote from Zechariah's prayer in Luke 1, 77 through 79. This Christmas carol, which we might expect to be full of sentiment and sugar plum fairies, it's all about sin and hell and the grave and misery. And it's all about those things because it's, it's full of scripture. Because of sin, we are enslaved. We're under the tyranny of the devil. We are lowly exiles from God's blessed presence. The gloomy clouds of night, they hang over us. We are oppressed by the grave. Even if we deceive ourselves for a moment that those things are not real, they're far away, we really are in the grip of sin, in the depths of hell. You'll notice in the hymn, as I mentioned, that we speak of Israel's captivity. And that's because if you keep reading in the Bible from Genesis 3, you eventually come to Abraham and God's people Israel. And and we see that Israel's trajectory is basically a repeat of the Adam story. The people of Israel, at first, they enjoy God's gracious presence and his law. He commands them. He dwells with them. And the tabernacle is full of Garden of Eden imagery. And they they receive his law and his presence, but they reject him and they disobey him. Their hearts are far from him, and eventually they're judged. The nations of Assyria and Babylon come and destroy them and take them captive. The temple's eventually destroyed. They mourn in lowly exile enslaved to God's enemies. They live in the shadow of death. Israel is a living parable of what it means to be a sinner, exiled from God in captivity to death and hell. Again, to try and celebrate Christmas apart from this bad news is is impossible. It's like trying to understand that movie you've never seen before. Without a clear sense of sin's evil, We have no idea why Jesus came. But when we grasp how we've offended God, when we know we deserve judgment from him, the miracle of Christ's birth becomes more clear. Because what it shows us is despite our sin, God shows mercy. Again, he starts showing mercy immediately when he promises this seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. He starts showing mercy when he gives Adam and Eve clothes, And he clothes them with animal skins. 
He, he shows mercy just by letting them live, by letting the human story continue, by, by allowing children to be born. If we say that the Old Testament is in large part a story of humanity's sin and exile, there's another greater story that persists through its pages. It's the story of God's grace and patience. God ransomed his grumbling people from slavery in Egypt, not because they were so great, but because he was merciful and he remembered his promises. God gave them leaders like King David, and and he was called the son of Jesse because his dad was named Jesse, interestingly enough. And God promises David that his sons will sit on the throne forever. But at some point, all seems lost for the sons of David. Guys like Ahaz come on the scene that we read about earlier. He was a son of David, and God pronounces judgment against the son of David's house. It seems all is lost. If David's line is lost, all is lost. But then Isaiah comes along, this prophet, and he foretells in Isaiah 11, a few chapters later, that there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. This shriveled up stump of Jesse looks dead, But a little green shoot will come. Jesse's rod will bloom, as all the Christmas hymns like to say. And this one, the prophet says, will bring peace and salvation for God's people. This rod of Jesse, Isaiah 11 says, will lead God's people out of the exile they so justly deserve. And he'll bring them salvation. But the big surprise of Isaiah is that this Davidic king, this rod of Jesse, he's, he's not some glorious ruler. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who will be stricken, smitten, and afflicted for the sins of his people. This is Jesus, the one born in David's line who's wounded for his people's transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. So the truly shocking thing about Christmas is not that it has a grisly backstory. The shocking thing is that there is a Christmas at all. Why didn't God immediately destroy humanity when they ate the fruit? Why wasn't that the last meal on earth? When we read Genesis, it's natural to wonder, why did the creation go off the rails so quickly? If God made this whole thing, and he's in charge of it, why why did he set it up this way? Why did he allow the serpent to enter? I don't have an answer that will satisfy you. The best I can do to say that is that God is perfectly good and wise, and the way he designed the world and people is in the way that brought him the most glory and did us the most good. But I'd encourage you, if you're Stumbling over this problem of evil, you should also stop to consider the mystery of God's grace. Why did God allow them to go on living? Why does God allow you to go on living? Why did God promise a Savior? Why is He so patient and gracious? Why did He want to restore fellowship with this rebellious people? What accounts for the good news that God himself took on flesh in Christ to bear our sin, to pay its penalty, to die? The song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, speaks of this saving grace. We mourn in lowly exile until when? 
until the Son of God appears. Jesus is the rod of Jesse. O come thou rod of Jesse and free us from Satan's tyranny. Jesus is the day spring, the sunrise from on high. He chases away the dark shadow of death. Zechariah the priest in Luke 1 says that all of this is because of the tender mercy of God. The God we've offended is a God of tender mercy. He promises Jesus will come in the Old Testament and the new he comes. The sun rises. And the way, though, he chases away death is the most surprising of all. The way that Jesus makes way the path that leads on high is by taking the curse of our sin upon himself. Jesus enters into lowly exile. He's cast out of the camp of the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus endures death on the cross, a curse of death. He undergoes death and hell for us. He goes down into the, the darkness of the shadow of death. And he comes out the other side. He dies and rises again for us. The way we receive this salvation of Christ is by turning away from our sin. For saying, I know my sin condemns me. I deserve judgment for it, but I renounce it. I repent of it, and I trust that Jesus died for me, and that through Jesus, I can come back into God's presence. That angel with the flaming sword is disarmed by Jesus. The curtain that separates us from God is torn apart so that we can enter in because of Christ's righteousness and his work for us. By faith in Christ, we are saved. By faith in Christ, as the last verse says, the path to misery has been closed for us. We have no more misery to fear when it comes to our eternal situation with God. All this is wrapped up in this beautiful hymn which summarizes the scriptures. But it would be a mistake to look at this hymn without looking at this word, Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. It means God with us. I don't know why it's spelled differently in different places, but it is. So in the Bible, in Matthew, in the ESV, it's I, Emmanuel, and here in the, in the song, it's E. I don't know why. But he is God with us. I just want you to think about, why is this good news? You know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden before they sinned, it was clearly good news. But after their sin, was it good news when God came near? Was it good news for Ahaz, that wicked king? That this prophecy was announced? It meant judgment for him. Is it good news for you that you're going to face God? That God has come near? It can only be good news when you know Jesus as Emmanuel. When you know that Jesus came near as God himself to take your place on the cross. This is the hope of Christmas. That Jesus comes to deliver us from sin and death and to bring us into God's presence. The God who made us has become like us in order to die for us. By faith in Jesus, the rod of Jesse, the day spring of on high, by faith in him, we're no longer in exile. We can come into God's presence. This hope is ours because Jesus is God with us, because he came as a savior, because he will save those who trust in him. And so if you know yourself that you've disobeyed, if you know you've forsaken the God who loves you, 
and is provided for you. If you know that you're dead in sin and sitting in darkness, you can come and find life in Emmanuel, in Jesus, God with us. He is the great ending to the story that we've been missing. To trust in him and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, what good news that Jesus came as a Savior. You would have been right to send him as a mighty judge, bringing an end to all things. But he came to seek and save us. Father, I pray for those here who have never trusted Jesus before that you'd bring them to faith in you. I pray for visitors and friends, for the children who are here, that you would grant repentance and faith and joy that they can know you and be in your presence without fear. For those of us who have long professed faith in you or perhaps who are new to faith, we pray you would encourage us with this good news. We pray we would be freshly gripped by the knowledge that Jesus is our Emmanuel and that we can be with you. We are even now in your presence, boldly coming before your throne. Father, grip us by this good news so that we share it, so that we rejoice in it together even as we leave in a few minutes, so that we tell the the store clerks and the old friend and everyone in between about him. We pray we'd be faithful to share the good news of Emmanuel, God with us in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.